let's put a red sofa on stage so that people with stage fright can sit on the sofa and just get over their stage fright. Women are not broken. The system is broken. I always describe it as like a bias towards action. It's like I'm going to do the thing rather than talk about the thing. But I get scared all the time and I think it's because I really, really care. I want to build a company that has incredible, measurable impact on the world and I also want to generate wealth. Two years ago, I went full time, like four years before then Mm -hmm. of slowly and intentionally building brand, building community, building the message. If you're in that season in your life where you just need to give it every single bit Mm -hmm. of you, that's also fine. Just don't make yourself sick. Welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to Starting the Conversation. I'm your host, Alice Benham, joined this week by the brilliant Lauren Curry, founder of Upfront, and as we'll discuss today, many other things as well. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. so excited to be here and be doing things in person. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Nothing beats it. And I have to say, one of my favourite things about meeting people in person is seeing how deeply does their brand go. And you you really match the brand. You turned up (laughs) in red tartan, which I feel not only matches the Scottish element, but also Upfront's branding. You fit the brief. Thank you. Thank you. I did travel today, so I was was on brand. You knew what you needed to do. It's the benefit, isn't it? If you build a brand that's just very related to you. I know. Because people say, like, what was the strategy for red? I'm like, it wasn't one. I just really like it. It's like you with black. And then once you like it, it's kind of easy to... You would really fit in in Sweden. That's the Swedish national outfit. Stockholm, for sure. It's like Mm. black head to toe with a splash of white every now and again. I've been considering a few months in Sweden slash Stockholm for a while. Yeah, well... I'd love to hang out and show you around. Yeah, because contacts with people listening, you live there. I do. I moved there two years ago. Question just mainly out of my own curiosity. Why Sweden? I did a bit of work with a school there, which you'll find super interesting, I'm sure. It's called Hyper Island. Have you heard of them? I don't think I have. So they're a school that exists to bridge the gap between creative education and creative industries. And their origin story is super cool. Started on an island in an old prison. in Sweden no teachers all the content taught by practitioners and like very focused on team dynamics culture stuff and so probably early 2000s I was invited to teach at their school in Stockholm as like a service design practitioner and so came over and just fell in love with the Scandi way yeah and also if I'm honest the Scandi men (laughs) I won't lie, they've got some good genes. Yeah, I wasn't as uh, strong a feminist then as I am now. So I was like, hmm, (laughs) maybe I can find myself a Swedish boyfriend and then I'll be able to move here. And so fast forward, met my partner on OkCupid, which I don't even know if that still exists. Wow, so retro. I know. And in this picture is like long hair, big beard, like really tall, waving a Swedish flag. So I was like, yes, this is my, this is my route to Sweden. And then as we were chatting, he's like, oh, I'm actually from Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) He catfished you. I was like, fuck's sake. Um, so he'd just got back from doing his master's in Sweden. So he studied there for two years. And so as we met and fell in love and started thinking about our life together, it was always a kind of, we would love, we would really love to live there. And then the second time the Conservatives got in, we were like, we can't stay here. We don't want to be in. We were in London at the time. And so the options were, do we go back to Scotland to be closer to my family or do we go to Sweden? So we decided to make the leap and then flights booked, apartment sorted and then COVID came. So we were like living in, are we going to get there? Are we not? Will we be able to move? Will we not? And then when the second lockdown lifted, we left. And I think something crazy, like six days later, the Swedish government changed the law because of Brexit to mean that anybody coming to live in the country needed to have a Swedish employer, which of course we don't have. We both work for my company. Yeah. So we just made it. Oh gosh, that's amazing. In the nick of time. And my wee boy was two when we moved and now he's can speak Swedish fluently and goes to Swedish school and I will say your Instagram is a great advert for Sweden the views yeah the I cold feel like the swimming. tourist board should be like hitting me up you need a bit of a sponsorship <laughs> deal for sure yeah very interesting I love that 
you feeling a bit lost or stuck when it comes to growing your service-based business? Perhaps you're struggling to take the right action and you're feeling like you could really do with some clarity and a strategy. My new program, oh crap, it's not new. I've done it many times before. Foundations First is for you. Hope you enjoyed that little intro there. Just thought I'd channel my best inner salesperson. Foundations First is a program that I created a few years ago. It's derived from the work that I do in a one-to-one setting with my clients and it basically teaches you everything you need to know about laying the foundations for a service-based business. It's going to walk you through clarifying your mission and your purpose and your vision, how to create your services and price them accordingly, creating the right marketing strategy so that you can sell what you do, having your systems and processes mapped out so that you've got a streamlined and efficient business, setting goals so that it's easy for you to make progress and so much more. By the end of the program, you will not only have the clarity and the strategy that you need to really grow your business, but you're also going to feel super clear on your action steps because hello, it's not strategy that grows your business. It is action. Doors are going to open very soon. In fact, a couple of days after this episode goes live. So if you want to be the first to find out and to get one of these spaces, make sure to head to alicebenham.co.uk or the link in the show notes to join the waitlist. There's going to be limited spaces and I'd love to see you in there and help your service-based business grow. Hope you enjoyed that sales pitch. Back to the episode. Let's maybe start at the start mm. because something I'm always really interested in is obviously people come on this podcast are incredible experts in their fields. Mm. So you're a real expert when it comes to confidence, gender equality, leadership. You do so much of that throughout front. I've been in one of the bonds. I can attest to your brilliance in that area. But alongside your expertise there, you're also a very accomplished business owner. Mm. And Upfront hasn't been your first business. So... No. Right back to the start, what was your first step into entrepreneurship? For me, I was really lucky in that I found my thing. You know, everybody talks about like, what is that thing that lights a fire in you and makes you feel really excited? I found that really early while I was at school. And I think due to having a fantastic art teacher, Mr. Grant. Shout out. I know, love him. He kind of introduced me to the world of design, like this idea that every single thing we look, we use and touch has been designed by somebody. Mm. And this just like blew my mind. And I remember him showing me a portfolio of somebody in the year above me who'd redesigned a TV remote control so that somebody with arthritis could use it more easily. And that was to me to think we can make things in a way that will help people was just amazing. So I became obsessed with like James Dyson and Philip Stark and I mean, yes, all white men because I guess that was the canon that I was exposed to, but like designers who had paved the way and making things beautiful and functional. So I went to university to study product design and then really quickly into my studies had another kind of pivotal moment where I got a lecture about design against crime. So it's this idea that the way you design spaces can influence how people behave in that space therefore you can design environments to reduce crime you can design environments for people with neurodiversity to feel more comfortable or you know whatever these things might be and that was just amazing to me to think okay it's not just about products and objects it's about whole experiences like how we do healthcare how we do education Mm. how we do fitness how we do learning and at the time service design was a very small kind of quite immature field you know I could probably name the names of all the top like most active 50 people in that field at the time because it was still so emergent and I really used that to my advantage being a student it meant I was could make friends with them and get to know them and learn from them and everybody was very generous and welcoming and that was how I became kind of part of the service design industry and then I set up one of the UK's first service design for social change consultancies with a business partner. So that was my first business and I ran that for about seven, eight years. And how old were you when you started that business? I was 23. Interesting. So to ask you the question I always get asked and never quite know the answer to, how was it starting a business young and female? I think I was very naive to the barriers that I did face to the extent that I didn't notice I was facing them. And I think obviously, you know, being being white makes that conversation a very particular one. But for me, I think ageism was always the biggest. That was the one that I felt the yeah. most, more than 
sexism or kind of any other bias like there was a lot of this is nice and cute but like just wait you know wait wait till you fall in love or wait till you have a baby mm. or wait till thing, you grow up a bit and then it won't be so like it won't go so well you know I would email with people for a long time and then meet and you would always see that moment of them being like shit <laughs> this like not they obviously just didn't expect me to look like what I looked like or sure. to be the age that I was but yeah looking back I think I had absolutely no idea what I was signing up for which probably was a good thing yes <laughs> if I'd known I'd run in the opposite direction probably yeah I completely resonate with that I think one of the superpowers of starting young is the naivety where like, I just had no expectations no understanding of what I was getting myself in for yeah so you just kind of throw yourself at it don't you totally and I think also you have so much less to lose mm-hmm like looking back now, I think especially since I've had a baby, it's like that cliche thing of, you know, I just had so much time and so few responsibilities. Mm. And that meant that, you know, the hours I put in, it just consumed my whole life. Yeah. And I think now looking back, I guess that was like the decade of my 20s. There, I do feel a tiny bit of sadness sometimes that I can have missed out on the, f- the freedom that comes with with that lack of responsibility because I kind of, what's the word, like by myself created this huge new world of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Didn't really need to exist, like I made it exist. Yeah. And so I sometimes feel I missed out on the like free fancy days of I don't know let's go to Ibiza for a week and go crazy or and I find I compare myself to a reality that I don't even know that I would enjoy Mm. I find myself going oh you know I just wish I could be a 24 year old and get in at 6am drunk and you know I hear these and I'm like but I would hate that New Year's Eve is probably the only night that I really go hard by 1am I'm ready for bed like (laughs) I'm not a big party animal but I yeah again really resonate with that of almost I guess feeling like you've got to make a choice I guess the grass is always greener isn't it at some points um, and there, there's always a trade-off isn't there I yeah. think that's the you know it's easy to hear these stories or hear any story and you kind of make up your mind about how brilliant that must have been and oh I wish I had that and that's better than what I had and really I think there's there's always sacrifices there's always trade-offs mm. and now I'm like way more aware and intentional about what those are whereas I think then I was just so probably quite tunnel vision at some at some stages you know just so Mm. focused on making progress what's next keep going keep going keep going like not not maybe taking stock to think about the bigger picture of it all. Do you feel that's been a shift in the way you run your business now and kind of your leadership style? Oh, hugely. Like, I feel like a totally different person. Mm. And that sounds cliche to say, doesn't it? But I, I do. Even just the last few years, I was chatting to my friend Jen about that this morning because she does a lot of work around systems change. And we were talking about this idea of your external work is essentially limited by your internal. And it's like you can only get so far until yeah. you have to start working on the inside stuff so that the external stuff can progress and I was thinking like I don't feel like it's a coincidence that my business is you know doing this and all the ways we would want it to and at the same time I've moved to Sweden swim every day Mm. run all the time things that I never never would have even imagined doing like three years ago so true but it's the internal that always feels least priority doesn't it it's not as gratifying it's not shiny no one else sees it for sure and it's harder like it's really hard therapy Mm. coaching journaling you know I know you talk a lot about that as well like going to therapy and reflecting like why am I doing this what's this for let's take a month off you know all these things it's hard like it's hard to it's the harder path Mm. but I think it always pays off so in that first business you ran where you perhaps didn't have as much of a focus on mm-hmm. maybe if we can paraphrase it kind of looking after yourself and yeah. doing that internal work what challenges did that cause what was the kind of negative impact of that approach well a very obvious one I think was burnout and overwork I mm-hmm. ended up in hospital at least once with a like curious mysterious I think it was stomach pain or mm-hmm. some like dizziness or something like that and they were like um are you 
stressed you know when they're just like I don't know what yeah. this is and I was like um you know and I traveled to like six, six different countries in the last two weeks or something ridiculous so <laughs> just like overwork workaholic yeah and I think my identity was I mean I think any founder has their identity wrapped up in their business I think that is part and parcel of being a founder but I think there are ways to do that and deal with that in a healthy way and there are ways that it can cause problems and I think I was probably too yeah my identity was extremely wrapped up Mm. in that business and I guess the result of that can then be the highs feel very high Mm. but the lows feel very low because it's almost you've not got this central stability how the business is doing really reflects to then how you're feeling yeah and there's no you know there's no room for anything else it was Mm. you know there was no hobbies there was no travel there was no it's like I love my work I travel for my work my work's my work like it it was just everything it was all consuming and I can see now that you know I don't regret it because I think that I could do that at that stage in my life but Mm. I think it's not sustainable to work that way. So obviously moving on from that first business, mm-hmm. was it during that business that the seed was kind of planted for what you do now? How did that transition come about? Yeah, I think so. It was a business of firsts. Like we were very much mm-hmm. one of the first to be talking about designers should work in government, designers should work in the NHS, you know, and this was like a crazy wild idea at the time, which of course is very ordinary now, which is great, but there was a lot of like evangelism and a lot of, Mm. we need to educate and get people excited around this new thing, this new way of doing things. So that meant a lot of, like I can now see marketing. I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time. But like I was really heavy on things like blogging, social media and doing a lot of talks at conferences, podcasts, panels and things. And there was quite a few moments where I would be in rooms or on stages where I felt uncomfortable because I would be the only woman there or would feel uncomfortable because the questions that they were asking me, which were inherently sexist biased questions again I was very naive as to why those things are such commonplace so I guess I felt I felt the kind of anger and injustice and frustration around like why is this happening and then as kind of years progressed and I moved into other things I kind of started to my eyes were opened as to you know this is the root of a much bigger complex problem um and then there was like one moment in in particular where upfront was born if you like um at a conference in bristol where i was the only woman on the on the bill and was just getting more and more irritated as the day went on because also and i think you know your listeners maybe have this as well from whatever sector you're in it's like the same 20 men yeah on a loop who like do the rounds of mm-hmm. the conferences and like some of them are really not very good you know it's like really quite average storytelling yeah and it's like so this at this event I decided to call it out and I remember like as my wee boy would say like I had bananas in my tummy you know when you're like oh this feels a bit scary and I don't think the organised I wasn't the organiser's favourite person but I said from the stage you know what is going on like why is this happening like I'm looking at the sea of lots of different people and yet everybody up here looks the same except me I think we were all white so I put a post-it note in the women's toilets that said would you like to talk on stage like tell me about it Um, and I said you know I want to have this conversation with you and so there was a big queue of people waiting to speak to me at the end of the event my Twitter was on fire people talking to me and that was the day where Upfront was born because I realised like what this is such a complicated nuanced problem like there's people Mm. doing PhDs trying to solve gender equality this is not pithy like the sexy startup's going to come and solve this it's not it's a systemic issue that's extremely complicated but there was like key insights you know with my designer hat on I could hear the patterns around how we train people to be on a stage doesn't work most people don't get training you know the first time you're up there you have to be good at it and that's 
crazy when you think about it yeah because in all other areas of our work when we want to do a new thing like you go on a course or you hire a consultant to help you or you know you you have learning opportunities and with the public speaking thing it's just not that so we end up with the people who talk the loudest or you know take up the most space and most of the time they are not always the best, most representative, most interesting voices that we want to listen to. So that mm. was the day it kind of all began. Did it feel like an, almost an accidental business at the start in that, you know, it started with just a very raw emotion mm-hmm. and it was the reaction to that that then made you think, I want to be doing something here? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was, It's to be honest, it's felt accidental probably up until the last two years was when it became, okay, I'm... <laughs> I'm being serious now I'm like doing this properly mm. because you know the response to what happened in Bristol was my my hypothesis or the, the thing I created that we called up front was let's put a red sofa on stage with keynote speakers so that people with stage fright can sit on the sofa and just get over their stage fright like realise mm. it's not that scary you know it's a bit like learning to swim you dip your toe in the water this was their like getting to dip their toe in the water in a really safe way so there was never a commercial model there was no you know I remember thinking at one point oh like maybe Ikea could like give us a couch or (laughs) you know maybe HSBC could like sponsor four places on the kit but really like that was as far as it went it was never intended to be anything and so as the couch on stage idea developed you know I think we had over 500 people sit on a couch at different conferences around the world and my mum made like upfront cushion covers and I used to post them to the conference organisers so that there would be some sort of like red thread throughout all the photographs of the people sitting on the sofa but as I would talk to these people you know some of them were just completely transformed by the experience you know just by sitting there for 20-30 minutes and they would be so buzzing and excited like what's next do you have a workshop do you have a podcast do you have a book like where, where can I go and I was like eh, I don't know I don't have I don't have any of these things I was busy you know doing other things and that was when I kind of looked out into the market and saw a really big opportunity and a really big gap for conversations around confidence, public speaking, visibility Mm. that were rooted in women are not broken, the system is broken and we need to do this work in a way that's focusing on everybody progressing, not just me teaching you, Alice, how to get a promotion or, you know, whatever whatever it might be. was where that was when it started to become something more and I prototyped different styles of workshops probably for three years in fact just around the corner at the metal box factory because my employer at the time said I could use it at the weekend so I used to go in at the weekend move all the furniture out of the way put posters up on the walls and stuff and we used to run workshops on Saturdays Mm -hmm. and anybody could come and buy a ticket and that you know all of that was me gathering data testing hypotheses Mm -hmm. understanding the problem And I did that for three, four years. And now all of that led to like our flagship product, which is now Mm -hmm. our our Bond product. Yeah. And now Upfront being an incredibly established, profitable business, team members, the whole shebang. Something that I really love about what you share is your focus on practicing and just getting started so mm-hmm. I think there can be such a overemphasis in the business space of you know doing all of the preparations and getting all mm-hmm. your ducks in a row and you know got to get everything ready how in those early days of upfront how did you kind of embody that approach I was describe it as like a bias towards action it's like I'm going to do the thing rather than talk about the thing um and it's funny because I think with all these like superpowers if you will there's always like a dark side of <laughs> that sometimes it's not the best way to be and it's not always helpful but in the main I think it definitely is one of my superpowers and I really do credit like 95% of it to my design training I think going to art school and studying product design learning to design services the way that I did like design is very much about how do we make this invisible thing visible how do we make these customers clients users imagine a world that doesn't exist and so maybe you sketch it maybe you make a model maybe you draw a picture maybe you create a simulation and so that kind of leap from I've got an idea now I'm going to make it real that is a very very easy 
comfortable space for me. That's like very much my comfort zone. And for a long time, I didn't really realise that was a gift. Like I just kind of assumed that was just ordinary. Um, People would say to you, I just can't get started. You're like, why? Why can't you just bring it to life tomorrow? Yeah, they were like, oh, but I'm going to do this course and I'm going to wait and buy this thing. And I'm like, I think you should just do it now. I yeah. think that would be better. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's it served me extremely well and still does. And I think the couch is a really good example of that. It's like, let's try this thing. And I mean, even if you go back further than that, Mm. You didn't plan necessarily to stand up on that stage and, no. and say that thing. It's very much just, I guess, following a bit of a intuition makes it sound fluffy, doesn't it? But you know what I mean? You just, you have a thought and you go, okay. I think it's that idea of like valid validation or how do you put it into the world so that people can respond? Yes. So that's what, And that's why I talk a lot about it up front. It's like when you just think for a moment, how many life-changing, average, below average, across the scale ideas have mm. never made the light of day because the person who they belong to doesn't think they're good enough, doesn't think they're ready, yeah. scared to be judged, all the things we know. And that's partly why I feel so strongly about helping people, particularly women, to understand, firstly, to understand what that fear is and where it comes from, and then really build a toolkit of strategies so that in those moments they can take action despite the fear, despite not feeling ready. And so, you know, prototyping is the word I would use. And it's also how I talk about, excuse me, it's how I talk about, like, as moving to Sweden, I can see for a lot of people that feels like a really big, scary thing, especially to move with no employer and a small baby and no family over there. We couldn't speak the language. But for us, it was like, well, it's a prototype. You know, there's a whole bunch of privilege in there. Absolutely. And I would never want to dismiss that. But mm. at the same time, I think there are lots of people in a position where they could also be prototyping stuff like that. And they don't because it feels too scary. It's like framing it as a, an experiment. When will we know this experiment's over? What, what will... What does it need to look like for us to continue with this experiment or for the next phase of the prototype mm. to, you know, and I think just having, it's a mindset that's very constant for me. So it makes me, it makes it feel safer to try stuff, but it's also why I get very frustrated and impatient if things get stagnant or I can't see things moving quickly, which mm. I'm sure is where some of the shadow side of that superpower yeah you're so right everything that gives us a strength can also be slightly debilitating yeah. in uh, other areas I'm interested you talked there about that fear that can kind of hold us back I think it can yes be in the early days but at any point in business you know if we're looking to launch something new push mm -hmm. in a different direction be more visible are you exempt from feeling that fear or how does it show up god no not at all um I think I feel so I'm starting to realise a pattern around when I feel it most mm. is like just before I'm about to move up a level. So, for example, the last time I can remember it happening was, I think, when we hired a new person or was it the second person? Something around hiring. And I remember doing the sums and just being like, like this is, it's such a big leap yeah. from where we are now. Oh my God, what if, what if, what if, what if. Uh, but it's, you know, I was in that moment, I'm able to, like, I'm really good at asking for help. That's another bias that I have, which I think is in the same, is in the same bucket of taking action. Mm. So I'll very quickly, like, call somebody who has done what I'm trying to do or Google it or go online and find somebody that I know knows about this stuff. So I think I'm good at not spiralling into the all the different ways this could go wrong. And I'm learning to, I think this is the goal, right? What you would talk about in kind of coaching work is like learning not to judge myself and get curious of like oh you're really scared this is fun this is interesting why is that why yeah. is that happening what's making that what's making you have that reaction and like again seeing it as a bit of an experiment of mm -hmm. like oh here's something unusual is happening like let's get get some data let's get close and figure out but I get scared all the time I mean I and I think it's because I I really, really care. Like I care mm. so, so deeply about 
my community and the people we serve and my mission and our team and I think those two things come hand in hand like when you Mm. care it feels scary things feel scary and on the note of caring having such a clear compelling Mm. mission you know so compelling that you made a business out of it Mm. right to become part of your life how do you balance mission and I'm going to say profit but Mm -hmm. I'm just using profit to kind of I guess demonstrate the more kind of quote-unquote business side of things yeah as you grow because I think there can be an assumption or a misconception that okay if it's you know purpose-led and mission-led we've got to give everything away for free yeah we're going to take the smallest salary possible no 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 it's not good to try and make loads of money out of this yeah what does that balance if it even is a balance look like for you in upfront yeah I think it's a really important thing for us to talk about because I all of the data shows that women in particular are more drawn to work in the third sector work for non-profits work in mission-led socially driven spaces and like let's take the third sector for example like that is notorious for um, underpaying people notorious for overwork and leadership and exec level is predominantly male and the rest of the workforce female like there's just lots about that model that is wrong and I think for me you know art school like I I remember like thinking really clearly you know I don't need to make any money like as long as I can draw and paint and make stuff I'll Mm. like be fine and figure it out you know that's probably like teenage years yeah and I think art school does have an air of really I'm saying an air that's actually not true they just don't ever talk about it it's like you don't ever talk about how am I going to put this creativity to use in the world and get paid yeah and for me from a design path it was well you go and work for an agency it's like well I don't want to work for an agency Mm. and then my first business was for profit private company socially focused upfront is the same did you ever consider starting upfront as a say not for profit or charity no I think one day part of our kind of roadmap is we would like at one stage to build I'm using the word foundation just because that's the most kind of understood language around it but some sort of not-for-profit arm particularly Mm -hmm. around schools and education but also we would like to build some sort of funds like an upfront investment vehicle so that we could support women in the bonds who want to build stuff oh I love that it's a very timely topic for for me at the moment because I've been having a conversation with my mentors and some friends of mine around how much do I share around revenue and profit and stuff because there's some really fun stuff happening and that mm. one part of me wants to shout about it from the rooftops another part of me is scared to do that because a it is not normal nor ordinary for women who run businesses to do that like that's still very unusual and with that will come judgment and all the things that I'm sure you've thought about as well yeah because I know you've shared a lot of your numbers on on your channels for me it's a it's really clear it's I want to build a company that has incredible measurable impact on the world and I also want to generate wealth for myself for my family and hopefully our community and the kind of wider ecosystem around up front you know that feels really right to me I feel really strong in that in that conviction and maybe part of it is if I try and psychoanalyze myself maybe part of it part of it is a response to that kind of art school education of like oh no no you can't do both you have to choose and I definitely have a bit of like really well watch me and I'll show you that you can Mm. do both because right now we are doing both maybe one day we would raise capital then that changes the conversation again maybe one day we become community owned then that changes the conversation again so you know it's a very kind of I'm open open to the different paths it might take but I think impact and wealth for me come hand in hand mm. and I guess they fuel each other don't they because yeah. money the is power you're building yeah. yeah the more money you've got the more people you can help and I know yeah. even you know aside from making profit in your business you do so many things you know like offering free spaces on the bonds to women who are on maternity leave yes. and that being part of it and I just love seeing things like that where you see women making a lot of money but actually keeping the values and what I would just see as kind of kind business at the heart of it and that's something that from an external perspective I I love watching I have such a curiosity to how you balance it Mm. of you seem to have a very 
strategic intentional kind of firm business sounds intense that's probably the wrong word but like I feel like you know what you're doing you mean business and I wouldn't mess with you but okay I'm digging that digging that description yeah but also it it feels incredibly kind and gentle and impact focused and I think I just love seeing that those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive and come to whatever decision is right for you but I would I'm always here for seeing the evidence that it's possible Mm. to do both. And I think, you know, I just guess just from personal experience, and I'm sure you know this with sharing anything online, there's always, I've I've found people that find it brash and, oh, you shouldn't do it. But I'm like, you're never my people. Like, you're going to have had that opinion, whether I shared a financial win or another win in the business. From my perspective, I think for people to see the evidence that actually you can make a shit ton of money and do real good in the world. Mm. Just think there's such a, it's like you said with the art school, it's almost this glorification of being a martyr to your desire. It's It's like, oh, I'm so in love with my mission. I'm going to live on 20p a week. And it's like, why is that? Why do we have to choose? It's horrible. And I think there's also something about like the financial literacy of understanding the difference between revenue and profit. And, you know, that feels like an important part. I wish it wasn't. I wish we didn't even think about that. But I know that if, you know, if we were to suddenly say together our businesses have generated, there'd be people, oh, so that means... You've got that in a bank account. That means Alice and Lauren are really... Like, doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, if your costs are higher, it could mean actually we're in the minus and we're in really bad shape so I think that's also an interesting part of it as as well but yeah it feels like a really important it feels like a really important thing to think about and talk about and I really wish Mm -hmm. I hope the women who run businesses who are listening to us I would love for you to talk to us about this bit of the conversation like what does it bring up for you to imagine mm-hmm. telling all your peers how much your business mm. is bringing in, how much profit you made last year, how much you're paying yourself? Mm. Like, I really do see it as like a feminist act. I feel it feels yeah. very radical. Yeah. And that and it feels it feels important. And I think just to add to that, it even if. You know, we're not saying to people go and share on Instagram stories how much money your business has made this year. That, you know, mm. I, it's my style, but it doesn't have to be everyone's. So that's probably a bit intense for some. Even just conversations with the women yeah. you're in community with. You know, for me, it's always nine times out of 10 when I hear someone else's reality, whether it's mm. this is how much I'm paying myself, these are my challenges, this is what's going on in the business. It's, it's that my assumption was that they were doing mm. way better yeah. And it's not that I'm relieved they're doing worse, yeah. but it's that then just gives me so much more compassion for myself of, yeah. all right, yeah, I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. Or it gives me a real bloody hell, that's possible. Yeah. Great, game on. Yeah. You know, you've, you've often got to see it before you want to be it. And I think yeah. to be in such a privileged position to be able to sh- give people evidence, like that's a great place to be. Yeah. And I've, I've been thinking about the role of... Because I think ego is a big part of this conversation. Mm. I think ego is a big part of being a founder and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, And, you know, if we took the very, like, very stereotypical founder persona of, like, the Silicon Valley tech bro who probably comes from a wealthy family or whatever it might be, you know, they're having to do work on finding humility and, like, finding vulnerability and the care and the kindness and the stuff that probably we are talking about and acting on quite instinctively and it's so I sometimes think and I've had this said to me by a few kind of advisors and stuff on like actually think about I think you need to think about it the other way a bit on like what would happen if you dialed that stuff down and dialed the ego up just just a tiny bit and just like let that play out in your mind of like how would you talk about the state of your business or your cash status or whatever that whatever it might look like and I think that's like an interesting yeah thought exercise to to realize actually like we are the minority you know and in, in this space usually it's led it's the other way around mm-hmm. on you need to take up less space and be less yeah (laughs) and we are trying to teach ourselves to be more and I think I know you had Ray Dodd on recently I think she speaks really beautifully and articulately about Mm. this idea of like too muchness and how that translates into how we run business completely Mm. and speaking of visibility that's something obviously it's a big part of what you do through up front is Mm -hmm. empowering such an overused word isn't Mm. it but you know 
nudging women to be more visible in their businesses and their lives and their careers. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, your visibility and Upfront's visibility has been a really, is a real strength. Seems like a really big part of Mm -hmm. kind of what's helped the business to grow. Yeah. When you look back at perhaps that moment where you did start to think, okay, this is more than a passion. I want to make this something. Yeah. What really helped you in those early days to get get the business out there? Because that's the bit I think can feel so difficult, right? It's like, I've got this thing. How do I share it with the world? My first kind of being on the internet was a blog that I started whilst I was still studying. And it's that classic, a classic story of like, I was literally on my way to the airport to do an internship in Amsterdam. It was like, I'm going to, you know, it was whenever, I think it was like 2000, 2000, seven or something so when everybody was starting a blog that was like the cool thing so it's like wordpress whatever and in my head i was like i'm just going to use this almost like what week notes are now like i'm just going to write notes Mm -hmm. of what i'm working on what i'm learning of course i would love to read things so i was like i'm going to call it red pencil or red jotter jotter's like a scottish word for a notebook if you don't know maybe all your listeners want to know (laughs) sometimes like what's a jotter so i remember i phoned my flatmate at the time and i was like okay so i can have red pencil or red jotter and he's like like red pencils shit <laughs> so okay red jotter is and so red jotter.wordpress.com and like for months my mum was the only person that read it you know she would call me being like oh liked your blog yesterday or you had a spell mistake or she'd be like you've not blogged for a few days how are you feeling yeah, okay we love a supportive mom. yeah she's amazing <laughs> and then over time like more and more people started to read it because as I mentioned before service design was so new you didn't have like the service design network for example mm. which is now a kind of huge global media space for all the service design stuff so I was it became like a service design news site for a lot of the practitioners which of course meant I could make friends with them they knew my name and I remember I was at this event in London talking to somebody who owned one of the brilliant service design agencies and he started talking to me about Red Jotter not knowing that it was me and I remember having this thing of like oh my god he doesn't know that that's me because my name's not on it because I I I think at the time it was something about an ex-boyfriend classic so I was like oh what if he's looking (laughs) everyone is obsessed with me (laughs) exactly the whole world's waiting for my blog to arrive and so I hadn't put my name on it and so that conversation made me be like okay I need to be like Lauren Curry Red Mm -hmm. Jotter and then honestly Alice I think it was only maybe three years ago that I changed all my handles from Red Jotter to my name like that was a massive I was terrified to do that like that felt like who do I think I am and Mm -hmm. what will people think and all the classic like yeah 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 and then I refused to use Instagram stories for years it was just like no there is no way like People think I think I'm an influencer. This is just awful. Like yeah. I was, and I've now like written posts about all these because I know that there'll be people listening thinking I think that not like they are there now, and I yes. and I know that it's so hard. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who does kind of similar work to yourself, like helps brands get out there, think about their tone of voice and stuff. And she was just like, "What are you doing? Like it doesn't make sense that you're not mm. on there talking, promoting stuff, promoting the work of other people." And then I started to make videos and yeah I think I'm just it's like a muscle I always talk about it like a muscle and I'm getting better and better at it all the time like now I've got a podcast I talk on stories all the time I'm like very I mean my favorite place to be is on a stage like I'm very comfortable being visible and I think a way that it's accepted and People are expecting you to be visible. So it's like, I've turned up to this conference and you're on a stage. This is yeah, this is great and what we all expected. Mm-hmm. But like other girls I went to school with expecting to open Instagram and me being like, here's a tip to help <laughs> you get through. Like, no. So that that idea of being visible in, in a place that's not going to feel... Yes. That was what used to make me feel really scared. It's almost like you're making your own stage, isn't it? And going, I'm yeah. just going to assume and hope that someone cares about what I say. Yeah. That takes a little bit more, doesn't it? And I think one of the ways that I got over myself, which essentially that is what it is, like just get fucking over yourself and get it done, was me 
helping other people be visible. So I was able to articulate, like, this is why I was so scared. Mm. This is what I thought about that made me feel less scared. And so I started to help other people get visible themselves. And, you know, now it's a really core part of what yeah. we do up front. And it feel, I know that it, I know that it does really help people um but it's interesting you know i think showing up on the internet is a really new thing that humans don't we don't really know what we're doing and i think mm. for female founders in particular like there's a whole like charmadine reed talks really eloquently about the like tax and labor around being a woman founder who's expected to show up online every day and build this incredible community which ultimately is an incredible asset to your business yeah. that is valuable um financially valuable it's, it's capital and men just don't have that same expectation mm-hmm. um men don't have that same pressure to be to be visible in a way that is palatable and i mean some of the things that you've done you know i think did you see, i saw recently you had a cohort go through the bond to employees of nike Was yeah that correct you had that you've done tedx talks you know hundreds of people in every bond you know so many people it's easy to look at that externally go how does stuff like that come about like yeah. what in the like how are you getting those kind of opportunities what mm. does what does that look like gosh I don't know I mean I think I mean the first thing I would say is it's easy to look feel like an overnight success and I think that's why the backstory is important to tell which I mm. appreciate you asking me about you know where did it all start because 2016 was a long time ago you know even though it was two years ago I went full time whatever it was that's like four years before then Mm. of slowly and intentionally building brand building community building the message having conversation like listening really understanding like what is this problem what does this thing need to be to solve this or to tackle this problem in a way that feels meaningful and I think I'm I think I'm a really good salesperson that's something that I'm kind of learning retrospectively again if you'd asked me like two years ago are you good at sales it's like well I've never really thought about it before but I'm especially now that I'm trying to grow a team and like get sales support it's like yeah this is actually really really hard Mm -hmm. and I think there's lots of different factors that make me good at it and one of them is I just really enjoy it. Like I really enjoy selling, convincing, showing people that they need, that our product can solve something that's going to make their business better. Mm. It's going to make their team better. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how it happens. It's like lots and lots of tiny, tiny moments, isn't it? That build up to great things. There's also lots of shit things that happen all the time that you don't know about. Very, very true. (laughs) That's why we've got to talk openly, right? That's why people need to hear it. And I'm curious then, what don't you like and what aren't you good at? Uh, So I am very bad at systems, processes, or being organised. You know, if you split a business down in, in the middle around CEO, visioning, creative, strategy, COO, processes people like processes and systems essentially I have a total blind spot Mm. around all that stuff luckily my partner mirrors my blind spot beautifully so he is now our CEO which is great bad at that stuff I'm very unorganized shout out to Kim your PA Kim is she's doing the most all hail Kim (laughs) we would not be here without her quite literally quite literally exactly I'm like where am I going passwords files like oh it's just the worst I'm the worst (laughs) I exhaust myself I love that so I'm bad at that I'm like I can't drive I'm really really bad at directions spatial awareness like I have a driver's license but I will never drive a car again it's just not a good idea you mentioned in there about now working with your partner mm-hmm. so I've seen the last two years you've taken the business full time yeah continue to grow a child Yes, he's now nearly five. Yeah, That's big old age. And your partner's come into the business. Uh I mean, how does that work? Because people talk about the juggle between business and and parenting. 
does it make it easier or harder when the business and the co-parent are, are yeah. the same person? I mean, it's early days. So also ask me again in five years. <laughs> so there's one one bit of it, which is just by the nature of Chris being my partner and by me having the personality I have and how I am up front was already like the third person in our relationship. I do that all the time. Yeah, I think. And then I real, don't realise until I've just been talking at him for about 10 minutes about the newest desk pad I'm going to make. And I'm like, you're right of glazed over. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Like, and I guess we don't see it the other way, but I imagine it yeah. must be very tedious at times. Um, Just a lot of nodding, really. <laughs> okay, all right. There was that. And then, so it, it was also very kind of circumstantial. So Chris started a coffee truck business during lockdown in London, bought a horse truck and converted it into a coffee box and it was doing super well of course because people had nowhere to go this coffee truck was like selling like 20,000 Kit Kats or I don't know it was, but it was doing super really well and so he was getting really excited on right we're going to roll this out We'll have trucks in different locations. Then we were really close to signing a contract to have a, brick, to have a bricks and mortar coffee shop. And then, of course, we moved to Sweden. Now, we always knew we were moving. So when we set the truck up, we had kind of put a team in place. So it was like this will be able to work without Chris mm-hmm. having to be here. But once we got there, it just started to get more and more difficult for him to manage that without being there in person. And I think building anything bricks and mortar is one of the hardest business models that exists and pretty much impossible if you cannot physically be there. And that was at a stage where we were like, we've got no idea if we'll ever be able to like fly regularly again. You know, there was so many unknowns around COVID. Meanwhile, Upfront is, you know, way more than I'm able to manage. And ha- like, I'm having to miss opportunities because I'm so overworked. And of course, no systems can't find anything. Process all over the place. <laughs> Chris was like, "This just doesn't make doesn't make sense. Like, why why am I trying to start this new thing when mm-hmm. we have this thing that is doing really well, and there's a massive big hole for a person with my skill set." We again, it was like, "Let's prototype this. Let's experiment it." And I think the first phase of him, he was more tech focused, so he was doing a lot of the working with our tech lead to support her, kind of doing a lot of the like crunchy tech data work that needs to be done and he was like not really loving that but you know did a good job and now the most kind of recent shift has been into COO so he now has one-to-ones he does all the one-to-one work with everybody in the team and he's working with everybody on their KPIs and their progress he does all our budgeting all our financial forecasting and I mean so far it's really pretty amazing where can we all find because <laughs> I'd quite like someone to do all of those things. I know. Great. I mean, it's, so he's a scientist. He studied evolutionary biology. And when we met, he was to just finish his PhD. I'm oh, sorry, just finished his master's. And so he started a new PhD and he was doing this PhD. And I think before he met me, he had, had never had any exposure to entrepreneurship, design. And the way he talks about it is like, he just had his whole world f- turned upside down on like, wait a minute academia is not actually the best way to affect change in fact it's mm-hmm. one of the worst ways probably because it's very old-fashioned very yeah. slow very male dominated all the things we know and so i think he just got more and more convinced on like this is the world that i want to be in and so we've joined forces extremely smart and an incredible feminist and i think also brings a male perspective on how all the things we talk about up front harm men too. Like at its core, it's about toxic masculinity and these things are harming men and boys just as much as they're harming women and girls. So yeah, it feels feels good. And we, so far, we've been able to be boundaried and that it doesn't take over the kitchen table. I mean, often we'll say, okay, we're not going to talk about up front. We're also not going to talk about Atlas, who's our son. And we're like, like, that's hard, you know, because you know we don't have much space in our life for other things. I can imagine. So we have to try and like intentionally not talk about either of those things. But it's funny that, you know, Atlas is, he'll be like, are you, are you doing the bond now? And we're like, yeah, we have to go and 
to a call and he's kind of learning the language around up front, which is super sweet. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's really cute. Next employee on the way. (laughs) Full family business. Is that where it's going? I mean, I would love that, but I'm also like, he will decide himself what he will be. He gets his Try not to project, yeah, project too much onto him. But of course, I would love that. That's so interesting. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back to ask Mm. about a few years down the line what that dynamic looks like. I guess still on that kind of note of family and business, Mm. I asked recently on Instagram stories what everyone wanted to hear on the podcast and yeah. I'd say 50% of the responses were motherhood and business how do I oh. how do I do it not I personally obviously do yeah. not have any children but you know just people wondering how do you do it gosh so the first way I did it was by having a partner who sacrificed his career for mine mm. you know that is the the truth of the kind of first phase of having a small baby because I couldn't have done it any other way like Chris did the majority of the caring for the first three years of of Atlas's life and now he picks him up from school he stops work at three at four o'clock and like that is the short answer to the question and I think the partner that you choose is the single biggest uh, factor in Mm -hmm. how that will how that will be for you um we when we had our baby we lived in london we had no family near us very few friends who were able to travel and support us and i think having a baby away from your support network is really truly one of the worst things in the world like it's awful Mm. i found it very very difficult again it's the trade-off of choosing to leave your home to like both of us grew up in towns that are you know not very nice places hard places to live a lot of poverty Mm. and the trade-off of leaving that and working hard to make good things happen as you end up far away from the people you love so that was that was hard and you know we've now moved to Sweden which they have such a distinct relationship with work especially around families and parenting of course they're one of the best in the world when it comes to uh, maternity and paternity Mm. pay and leave but there just is a general culture of work is quite low on the list it's really not a thing that is front for anybody really Mm. like Sweden is very you go to work and you come home and it's home time and sport time and family time and weekend time it would be like super unusual for somebody to still be working at seven o'clock at night or to work at weekends or that would be like not a thing that would that would happen and of course we both work for upfront so it's not like we are inside company cultures that have that very Swedish way of of being but just by being there mm. I think the pace of life the fact that there's so much greenery and nature everywhere there's so much open water everywhere means that you know there's a lot of time outside there's a lot of breaks and childcare is pretty much free so I think I mean I shouldn't say because people will be devastated but I think we pay like £100 Mm. a month which when I hear these stories of women that are paying more than their salary per month you're basically going to work for free yeah and that's why I'm here to march tomorrow for pregnant then screwed so I think that. there's 17. You got your top hat ready? Got my top hat. I think there's 17,000 people have signed up to march. Wow. That's going to be incredible. So, yeah, I think there's always a trade-off. There's incredible upsides, which is the freedom that you have to choose your own hours, the freedom you have to choose when you work, how you work, but you and I both know that there is a shadow side to that freedom, which is when things aren't going well, if the clients are not coming back, if your money's running out, then it's bucks on you and that weight's on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something to be said for it's really okay to, to, to want some stability in what will probably be the most unstable time of your life, whether that's physically or emotionally. You know, when I had my baby, I've only been employed twice ever. And one of those times was when I had my baby and that was fairly intentional. You know, I really liked the idea of mm. having maternity leave and knowing that I had a job to go back to. Um, 
in the end I actually never went back to it because I started another business while I was on maternity leave but that's a story for another day <laughs> you know my employer were brilliant and they it really made a big difference but mm. something that I do see a lot of is people staying in jobs they're not happy in because one day they might need maternity leave and I think that's really dangerous because you are well first of all there's so much uncertainty around will that maternity leave happen will it happen at the time you want it to will it be the type of like there's a lot of unknowns there and I think to stay somewhere that you're not fully appreciated or you're Mm -hmm. underpaid or that's not going well for you just to get maternity leave is never it's never a good thing Mm. so if you cannot and I know that not everybody has the choice but if you do have a choice I would encourage you to to not do that and I think if you're a freelancer it's about building up your model so that you are charging enough to cover sick days holiday days maternity leave pensions so in short put your prices up I love that. Thank you for being so honest about what it looks like for you. Mm. I think that's, you know, when people are asking that question of how do people do it? And I think no one thinks there's some magic solution, but it's just hearing everyone's approach, isn't it? I think reminds you that there isn't one perfect way of doing it. No. And that, yeah, no, no one truly has it all. We're all just trying to juggle it together. And I think, you know, there's never... Like where we're at now is I'm often probably because of my hormones thinking about what it would be like to have another baby. And that's like a really hard conversation when you're a founder and you're growing a business and your partner is also in the business. And like that feels extremely difficult and Mm. hard. The place I'd like to end this conversation is around, I guess, your personal growth uh-huh. over the years of running a business because when we started off this chat you were talking about running the business in your 20s mm-hmm. and that cycle of burnout workaholic mm-hmm. really attaching your identity to your business the way you were just speaking then about kind of lifestyle now mm-hmm. you know having that bit of detachment mm-hmm. switching off at some point yeah. seeing life as well as work as a priority I guess first of all I acknowledge that it's never that black and white and mm. I think like you said to an extent you've got to be a little bit obsessed with it to, to run a business yeah. but you know that personal growth I know there might be so many business owners listening and you know it's a question I'm interested in myself who are thinking I kind of resonate with maybe a bit of where you were mm. in your 20s I think we can all get into that mindset what has been one of the things that has really helped you to make that shift if someone is listening and thinking okay well what can I do that's going to help me move yeah. forwards from that place what, what would you like to leave people with? If I think of the answers I want to say to you, if you'd said them to me a year ago, I'd have been like, Mara, that's like, not 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 for me. Interesting, like what? Um, well, my mind goes to like the physical stuff. And I think I said on your post yesterday when you announced the marathon. Uh-huh. Um, well, I've done the same thing and I only ran for the first time ever in March. When's your marathon? Next June. Oh, exciting. Got you've given you've done the smarter route, which is giving yourself <laughs> yeah, a yours decent is the amount of time. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we'll be training right at the same time next yeah. year. Should we should get a WhatsApp group? I'm yeah, trying to get because um Rosie Davies Smith, I don't mm. know if you know from PR Dispatch. You okay. two would really get along. Okay. Uh she's running the London one as well and we were messaging last night going, People keep saying to me, oh, as long as you can run five K you can do it and I'm like, I can't run five K <laughs> like I don't think you understand how much I'm not and she said the exact same. So I think we need a founders running marathons yeah let's, let's do it I'm totally up for that great anyone listening want to join last night yeah <laughs> totally but I think that's been a big which is directly linked to moving to Sweden I think moving to Sweden two things one you want to be outside all the time because it's beautiful and mm. gorgeous everywhere you look and second I feel safe there and mm. I've had a bit of an epiphany that I have never felt safe up until now in terms of to physically be outside yes. and a, whether it's like in your leggings or sports bra or whatever would never have walked I would have you know avoided walking at night in mm-hmm. most of the places that I've lived before and so that means that I'm outside more I'm walking it started with walking um, I used to I decided I was going to try and do 10,000 steps every day and mm-hmm. so I would do calls and stuff whilst I was out walking and that made a massive massive difference to being able to switch off from work means you sleep better you sleep better means mm-hmm. your 
days feel better and now that walking has turned into running and now I'm I'm swimming because there's cold lakes everywhere so I'm getting into like cold water swimming it's 10 degrees now in the water I mean I say swim you just kind of dip in and splish dip about dip in breathe a and bit then, and go and okay. then dip in shimmy and then get out yeah but you, you know your body gets all the the positive hormones and all the brilliant things from that but I think it's about finding I don't know I mean I'm also in two minds because I do think sometimes if you're in that season in your life where you just need to give it every single bit Mm. of you that's also fine just don't make yourself sick and I think that's the bit that is hard people are making themselves sick whether that's Mm. mentally physically emotionally losing touch with friends losing touch with family yeah and I know you talk about this a lot because you took your month off and as did I, I'm going to try and take January off as well. Mm. It's like open your diary now and just book the time off. I don't care if it's six months from now so that it's there and it's protected and you're making a commitment to yourself. Mm. Trial a four day week. Make sure you always take a lunch break. It's the small things. That yeah. Because even, even if you end up building the most phenomenal business in the world that you're so proud of, if it ain't scalable, then what are you up yeah. to? Like, because it's not going to, you're not going to be able to keep it going. You're your business's most precious asset. If you're burnt out, yeah. nothing's going to happen. So you're so mm. right. You've got to look after you. And I, I appreciate that clarification as well. Of Actually, sometimes you are in a season of yeah. push and I hate to say the word, but a little bit of hustle when you just hey, love a bit of hustle. Down. I love hustling. It's great. Especially in the early Healthy days, hustle. right? Yeah. Like I can look back now and be like, yeah, I'm all about balance. Like, <laughs> no, early days was, you know, long days and a lot of bloody hard work. And a lot of the time yeah. it still takes Absolutely. that. But yeah, you're right. It's got to be healthy. Yeah. And I feel like we're all, I mean, society loves doing this, isn't it? It's like... There's two extreme views and one's bad and one's good. And yeah. I feel like we've demonised hustle to the extent where it's like not when it's not even palatable for us to say that word. Yeah. And as you're right, like it's just there is a healthy way or a f- yeah a way that feels good. And like I get such a buzz, I get huge adrenaline. Like how do you feel when you close the deal, when you get the check, when the client says yes, when you yeah. send the invoice, when you get the feedback of the impact your work's having? Mm. Like that's what you get yeah if you it's addictive yeah I love it kind of gets me excited to go and yeah. work some more this evening <laughs> I love it thank you so much this, oh, thank you I could honestly sit and still ask you so oh, many questions thank which you. is the best sign of a guest so thank you for your honesty and everything you do as well I think your work's fantastic thank so. you so much Alice it's been an honour to be here in your fancy studio I love it <laughs> not quite my studio but we'll, we'll just pretend. pretend it is for yeah. the day I so hope you enjoyed listening in to that conversation as much as I did recording it. That is easily one of my favourite guest episodes we've had here on the podcast. And yeah, I just think so much to take from. So thought provoking, absolutely loved it. Just want to give you a final reminder before rounding off this episode about the imminent launch of my group programme Foundations First. If you run a service-based business or if you have an idea for a service-based business and you're really craving the clarity and the strategy that you need to grow, then Foundations First is for you. Doors are going to open really soon. There's going to be limited spaces. So if you want to be the first to find out more and get yourself in there, make sure to head to the link in the show notes or to alicebenham.co.uk. Aside from that, I hope you have the most fantastic week. I'll be back in your ears next Tuesday. So have a good one. Bye.